Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. We're here with Maddie Rausch. It's March 8th, 2023. We're at Bergstrom Winery in Newburgh. Maddie, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. Uh, the first question to get you started is why wine? Well, I feel like I have a couple answers for you. Uh, but first off, because of my parents, they are incredibly persuasive people. <laughs> Don't know if that's always a good thing, uh, but I guess it would take us all the way back to my upbringing. Um, I was born and raised on the island of Kauai, and uh, I have two siblings and an older sister and a younger brother. And my parents actually grew up in the upstate, um, upstate New York. And at 18 years old, my dad said, let's move as far away from these cold winters as I possibly can. And uh, eventually made his way out to the West Coast uh, where my mom moved out there with him. And then they moved out to Kauai after that. Uh, and three decades later, they're still there. <laughs> um, but. It's such a special place and, you know, my dad is Irish and German and my mom is Italian and, you know, you'd think that that would lend a lot of family dinners to pasta and meat and potatoes, but that wasn't the case at all. I mean, my mom is an incredibly talented chef. She is fearless in the kitchen and we grew up so focused on food having cuisines from all over the world. Everything was so experimental. Not always great, <laughs> uh, but it taught us a lot about an appreciation for food and what goes hand in hand with that is the wine and drink shared on the table. So we were exposed to a lot of that as, as really young kids. Um, and throughout our adolescence, uh, our parents were always getting us to try certain things that maybe we weren't too fond of. Uh, I hated tomatoes and mushrooms until I was a young adult. Don't know how that ever happened because they're delicious. Uh, but yeah, and then growing up on Kauai, it was, it's such a fruitful place. And, you know, we would spend time fishing and picking lychees or mangoes on hikes, um, picking opihis, which is like a little mollusk, uh, off of rocks and eating those. and kind of understanding what the land had to offer and what could be cultivated and, and brought into the kitchen. Um, and so, you know, through that time and, you know, learning how to cook for my mom and having this appreciation for food and wine, uh, when I got to be 17 years old and thinking about what I wanted to do, I had no idea, <laughs> like most other teenagers. Uh, but I knew that I loved science and I knew that I didn't want to sit in a cubicle, um, love being outside. That's, I grew up living outside and my parents said, well, what about winemaking? That's pretty cool. I mean, we like wine. <laughs> we think you'd like wine and uh, maybe someday we can come get a discount. Um, <laughs> but I think that they saw something that I didn't see yet. And you know, not that parents are supposed to make decisions for you, but it was an intuition that they had that like, wow, she would she'd be really good at this or we think that she would really like this. She could go places studying something as interesting as wine science. And so we embarked on the 
the college trip, you know, you hit UC Davis, you hit Cal Poly, and I remember going to Davis, I remember the eggheads, uh, the bikes, so many bikes, and they, the campus was really impressive, and I, I really liked it, um, but didn't quite get that spark, and we kept, you know, driving down the coast, and we hit San Luis Obispo, and I walked onto that campus, and People talk about these moments where things just click for you, and, and I've had a few of those moments in my life, and that was one of them. I have never felt so at home just from being somewhere for less than three hours, and we walked on campus, and everyone was so friendly, and it was contagious, and the curriculum seemed awesome, and I'm surrounded by mountains and ocean, and I just told my parents, I'm like, that's it. The trip is done. This is where I'm going. I want to study enology here. I want to go to Big Sur and camp. Everyone is so nice. Uh, and so yeah, I applied early decision and got in that December and never looked back. And that was kind of a, <laughs> a whirlwind now that I think back on it. I was so naive. I had no idea where it would take me. And I don't think many people know when they go to college. Um, so yeah. I, Started the next year in the fall, moved into the dorms, and I had cleared a few GEs out of the way, so I was able to take as many viticulture classes um, along with my enology courses. So they just got right into it. And the curriculum there is really fast-paced, um, but I remember taking wine microbiology classes and irrigation classes and learning about pruning and ampelography, and it was so informative and I was so excited, and there was so much practical knowledge just being thrust upon you um, that I thought, well, what's the next step here? I mean, I love what I'm learning, but let's get some culture behind that. And so I studied abroad in Italy um, going into my junior year. I found a program through, I think it was the university, a university in Georgia somewhere, um, and yeah, got some classes approved and went out there for the fall semester and got on a plane and went to Florence and lived there for three months. And I got to take Italian wine courses and food and wine pairings, snuck an architecture class in there. And that was a really great time and an eye-opening experience for me because it touched upon all of the intangibles of winemaking. I mean, in school you learn about the practicalities and the theory and the science behind it, but then you go to this place where they've been making wine for generations, and they don't look at pH, <laughs> and they don't plate wine samples to look at you know, microbiology. They're simply relying on intuition and family history of making something that they just know how to make, and that is inspirational to a degree that I can't even comprehend going to these wineries and talking to people who have made wine and their parents have made wine and their great grandparents have made wine and they just follow the culture there. And um, I remember getting chicken skin walking into those wineries because there's so much history there and there's such a big story. And that's where I kind of fell in love with the idea of this is so much of the kind of winemaker I want to be. I, I want to have that story, and I want to have that intuition and that culture. Also, you know, rely on science when you need to, because that's, that's safe winemaking. Uh, 
but there's so many facets to it and it was really cool to see that. And of course, you know, when you're in Italy, you have an abundance of food and fell in love with cheese, ate so much pasta, had so much prosciutto. And there are so many wine shops where uh, being a poor college student, you could go in and spend 20 euro on two really great bottles of wine and, and get to know regions and understand the culture in Europe and how winemaking is so subjective. Um, because here you don't always get that access to those kinds of wines. And so for me, and I wasn't even 21 at the time, so I was having a great time going around and trying all of these wines from all of these different regions and also educating myself on European wines. Um, so that was really great. And when I came back, I was like, all right, let's let's do harvest. Let's see what this is about. So uh, to graduate from Cal Poly with an enology degree, and I believe it's viticulture too, uh, you have to do a harvest before you graduate, which is really good. I think that everybody <laughs> should do a harvest before they get their degree to make sure it's a good fit. Uh, maybe a last minute pivot is needed. Uh, but that wasn't the case for me. I, I got an internship at Center of Effort, um, which is a really, really cool facility, and I'm so thankful that that was the first winery I ever worked at. Uh, it's in Corbett Canyon, um, which is Edna Valley. It's in San Luis Obispo, uh, but it used to be the Corbett Canyon Winery. Uh, they made boxed wine back in the 80s. So working <laughs> in, in a facility that had uh, you know, new bells and whistles, but then you go to the giant cellar behind everything and you've got tanks with Pacific Coast Thread uh, fittings and hoses that are probably as old as my parents and <laughs> old electrical and 30,000 gallon tanks. Uh, it's really, really, I, it's really cool to see that because, you know, at Center of Effort, they were crushing over 3,000 tons of fruit. Um, but they were also making, you know, 5,000 cases of, of really pristine, high-quality Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. Uh, and it was really crazy because as an intern, you know, your first harvest, you have no idea what's going on. And you're on the sorting line, you know, processing one ton an hour of fruit, meticulously pulling jacks off of the sorting table, and then you switch shifts and you walk outside to where you're dumping five ton gondolas of cab sauv and pumping it through a six inch must line into an open top fermenter or a closed top fermenter that's 80 tons. And to me, I'm so thankful for that experience because it, you know, kind of showed the two sides of winemaking. Like, do you want to be a micro winemaker or a macro winemaker? The processes are one and the same to a degree, but the equipment that you use to get there is really, really different. And I think that that's something that I'd recommend to a lot of people out there is work at places that offer you know, changes in size and scale because it gives you a really great experience and backbone to you know, how things can efficiently be done in the, in the winery. Um, but yeah, Center of Effort, they make ultra premium Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. Um, they have their custom crush side of the facility as well. Uh, but I worked there for two years and worked there as I graduated college. Um, and it was, it was a really great place to work. They worked us really, really hard. <laughs> and I, 
I like that the first two harvests that I had were my hardest because it uh, set the bar really, really high for physical endurance and how, how far you can really go before you break. I remember my first harvest we picked uh, in August and we pressed off, I was wearing a Christmas sweater when we pressed off. It was mid-December and I was still going to school. I was in college, <laughs> so I was going to class doing harvest, but I loved it. It was so exciting to be covered in grapes and be digging out 20-ton tanks and to, you know, shove a turkey sandwich down your throat and go back to work and uh, it's so exciting. There's an energy there that is really hard to explain to somebody who's never done harvest and it's infectious. And I think that once you do it and you love it and you like that stress and that chaos, but it's so organized, uh, it's hard to let it go. And I kind of caught that and I, I crave harvest now, you know, when it's not harvest, I feel a little, oh no, I feel disjointed and discombobulated. Um, so yeah, getting to work there was great and I'm so thankful for that experience. And, uh, but I was ready to kind of pivot to micro, micro wineries after a few years. And I got a really great uh, opportunity to go be the enologist for Paul Otto down in Santa Barbara County. He was making wines at a Central Coast Wine Services in Santa Maria. And you know, you're moving down to a 5,000 case winery now. There's no six inch must lines. There are no big Waukesha pumps. Uh, and that was really cool. We got to work with some of the most pristine vineyards in Santa Barbara County. Um, we have Biennacito and Larner Vineyard and Zodovich and walking, the, walking those vines and, and getting to know the area so well uh, was really special and I learned so much about single vineyard expression because I hadn't really gotten that yet. And I think that that was a big driver for me um, going to the places that I worked after that because you really saw terroir expression when you look at single vineyard wines. Um, and Paul was really, really good at, you know, honing in on your palate and talking to you about, you know, what you taste and, you know, you're tasting berry. Well, what kind of berry? And, well, I really like this Cooper. Well, why do you like this Cooper? Like, tell me why. And really honed in on how subjective it can be and to be confident in what you're tasting. Um, and I'm really, really thankful for him because he gave me the confidence to, you know, when I started traveling to understand what I'm tasting and know what I'm tasting. And I think that, you know, being able to pick out flaws too, like if there was a wine that we made that wasn't so great, which always happens, uh, it was really good to be able to pick those things out too, because that's another big part of being a winemaker is, is knowing when something is at fault because you don't want to put that in bottle and share it with the world. That's not good. Um, so yeah, working with Paul was great and working in Santa Barbara County was fabulous. Uh, but I had the bug. So I'm like, okay, let's do some Southern Hemisphere stuff. And I went down to New Zealand. And that was one of the best harvests of my life. Uh, I was in central Otago at Gibson Valley. What year? Uh, it was 2019. Yeah, so I went there in February 2019. And talk about people who know how to have a good time. Whew. 
Uh, <laughs> man, I think we went through more kegs that harvest than I went through in college. Uh, yeah, it. That was the first harvest where it was like, wow, harvest is meant to be a celebration. This is so much fun. We're getting work done, but we're having so much fun doing it. And we're building lifelong relationships with each other. And yeah, you know, we would be there really late, probably when we didn't need to be. But that was what made it so fun. And we'd sit around a table every day and have lunch for an hour, maybe two blind taste wines around the world uh, and just talk about it and get to know each other. And I think that is what, when it kind of clicked for me like, wow, this is really important too, is bringing that culture to the table because wines made with gratitude and made with feeling, those are things that you can detect in wine, or I feel strongly about that. Um, where, you know, if, if you've put a lot of hard work into a wine, you can see that. And there's a story there, and you want to be able to make a wine that stops somebody in their tracks and makes them think, wow, what went on here? This is a really cool wine. And a lot of that you get from talking to the people that you work with or talking to the people in your community and getting this inspiration and getting these ideas. And at Gibson Valley, they, they really celebrated that. And it was a beautiful area. Um, it was also the first time that I got to make Riesling. Uh, I love aromatic white wines. It's my passion. Um, I'd only made another aromatic white wine before that at Paul Lotto. It was uh, Malvasia in concrete. It was really cool wine from the Larner Vineyard. Uh, and that's also where you know, I loved drinking Riesling um, my entire adulthood. It's my favorite wine to drink, and I got to make it for the first time. And that's also when I was like, wow, I want to make this wine for the rest of my life. This is so cool. It's so versatile. And, you know, we were pressing it on top of Pinot skins, and it was fine. You know, they also knew how to push the limits down there. Of, I had always worked in a winery that was so structured and you must clean this before you do this and you have to follow all of these steps and uh, here it was like let's just see how far we can take it let's just really push the limits and play a little bit of a dangerous game uh, <laughs> but it's really great because it's so eye-opening in that sense where it's like well what is practical you know how like do i really need to be doing a lot of these steps and their wines were spectacular. And uh, so that was a really cool experience for me because it was like, you know, the opposite end of the spectrum. Still making really great wines with a really great story, uh, but the process to get there was a bit different. Um, and I remember I was actually, I love New Zealand, traveling around there. It's an incredible place. The people are friendly. The food is delicious. Food is so good. Uh, and just going to Milford Sound or going to Dunedin or uh, Wanaka. It's just, it's a really beautiful place and there's so much to explore. And my plan was to go back and live there for a really long time. <laughs> uh, and maybe I will still someday, but life had other plans for me. And uh, I thought, well, let's just go back up to the US one more time. Because I saw a posting for Harvest Intern at Berkshire Wines. It's like, well, I like Bergstrom wines. 
they make good Pinot. Let's, let's do it. Uh, let's apply. And yeah, got the internship, left New Zealand, checked in on my storage unit, drove my car up here. <laughs> and uh, that was kind of a whirlwind too. But I was so excited because, you know, going back to how I grew up and how fruitful everything was around me, I was going to a place that was thriving with life. I mean, the land here is so fertile. There's so much that you can do. Uh, you know, you can go out and forage mushrooms. You can go to the coast. You can go crabbing, two things that I love to do whenever I can. Um, and the appreciation for those things and the appreciation for nature out here is, is so consistent to what I was used to. It almost, in a way, felt like I was going back home, but it was a bit different. Uh, so driving up here was really exciting, and I had no idea <laughs> what was in store for me. Um, 2019 was one of the best years of my life, some of the best harvests of my life. Uh, came here, met my future husband here, um, which is amazing. Made some lifelong friends, and I got to make some of the best wines I've ever made in 2019. I remember showing up, and Josh was like, okay, this is how I make Chardonnay. It's like, wow, this is different. Okay, I'm gonna trust you on this. <laughs> this is, it's gonna be okay. And it was fine, it was great. And um, moving through harvest, I, I learned a lot about whole cluster percentages, something I never really dealt with before. And let's talk about lots of native ferments and let's get really into vineyard expression and um, let's focus in on being stewards of the land that we farm. And it was that craftsmanship that drew me to Bergstrom in the first place. And so when Josh asked me to stay on and be cellar master, that's no brainer. New Zealand, you'll have to wait a second. <laughs> like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna check this out, this is cool. And so yeah, came out in 2019 full time. And then 2020 happened. Worst year ever. <laughs> um, and yeah, we just kind of hunkered down as a team. Uh, me and the enologist at the time, um, and assistant winemaker at the time, and Josh is the four of us. And, and we just made it through 2020, which was a really, really challenging year. Um, a year that probably scarred people for a lifetime in a lot of ways. Um, but, you know, for me, it almost like I needed a redemption. I'm like, let's just keep going. So uh, as challenging as it was, you know, we pulled through and made some really great wines and it continued to heighten my and reinvigorate my passion for winemaking. You know, every year that there are challenges, I think that it only accentuates winemaker ability. You know, in easy vintages, it's easy to make a good wine. But in hard vintages, it really showcases the people who are good at what they do and it puts a lot of pressure on us. And I like that pressure. Um, and so as stressful as those vintages are, I really like them, you know? And if you make mistakes, which you always do, uh, it's those vintages where you're gonna learn from them and grow the most. And so I guess that's why wine? <laughs> and, uh, is that, that was pretty like, woo! Um, why wine and how wine? How wine, every day. <laughs> and I mean, I have my aha like wine moments too, but that, that in a nutshell is kind of why I do what I do every day. All the, the little nooks and crannies. 
Excellent. Well, I'm going to come back and catch us up back at 2020 here in a minute, but I want to back up for a little bit and, and follow up on a few things you talked about. Uh, I'm curious about the, your sort of first harvest experience. You talked about sort of being kind of enamored with the physicality. How did it compare to what you had learned in school? What were the gaps and what were the either surprises in a good or bad way of doing the actual work? Yeah, no, it's a great question. Uh, so yeah, school, really helpful. Um, I learned a lot, you know, going into a harvest, knowing uh, what fermentation does and having a really good idea on bacterias and microbial pressures and how to properly sanitize something, because still to this day, people don't know. <laughs> Those are things I learned in school. And uh, while I do think that school is a really good tool to have, um, it's not necessarily something that's required to be successful in the winery. Uh, it gave me a stepping stone for sure, but um, there are theories that only work in the classroom. And winemaking is a whole nother beast. Theory only takes you so far when the fruit is in front of you and you have to make a decision in a split second because there's more fruit behind that and there's more fruit behind that. Uh, you really have to rely on practical knowledge and skill and, and really intuition. Um, and so that first harvest, you know, I, I had no idea what I was getting myself into. I always heard harvest was fun, uh, but the physical demands of harvest, working at a place like that, it was really mind-blowing to me. And of course, you know, I was 20 years old. You can handle anything when you're 20. <laughs> doing, you know, 150 punch downs a day and digging out 80 ton fermenters, it was fine. Would I do that now? No, absolutely not. <laughs> but for two vintages, that was great. And I learned a lot about how to run every different kind of pump and how to fix a boiler and, <laughs> you know, how to trip breakers and then fix breakers and how to take an air pump apart and how to, you know how we ferment something differently as a one ton macro bin uh, all the way up to a 35 ton tank of Petit Verdot that I don't know where it came from. Uh, it was really cool to see those, those two sides of it. Um, and also working at a place where there's a night shift and a day shift is something that I don't know if I'd ever be keen to go back to. <laughs> Uh, and it's, it, for me, it was a really great place because you understood the practical basics of winemaking uh, and you were worked really, really hard. It was the limit of, you know, what can you really take? Um, I mean, we had 60 ton presses on the press pad and the next to it was a little ton and a half Euro press. So learning a lot about equipment, I'd say that that is where I really learned a lot about how to be mechanical in the winery. I love to fix things. Sometimes I think of myself more as a handyman than a winemaker, <laughs> which is great. You need to know how to fix everything that you work with, uh, or at least I believe so. And so yeah, that was the harvest where you know my boss, Daniel, he's the handiest guy I know, and um, he taught me how to take everything apart, how to put everything back together. And so that harvest was, was great for that. And, you know, school didn't really prepare me in that way. They taught me how to run a spec, you know, 
plate, bacteria, uh, look at things under a microscope, let's talk about aromatic compounds, let's blind taste, um, but they're not gonna tell me how to rack a wine from one tank to another. Uh, they're not gonna tell me how to, you know, sample fruit, understand what it means, bring it to the winery and put it somewhere where it needs to go. Those are things that you can only learn through experiences working in different cellars. Um, so yeah. You brought up the physicality a couple of times and obviously uh, harvest a, a lot of physicality, a lot of, a lot of stress. So tell me about sort of finding your limits and uh, does it get easier year to year? Uh, as far as your limits decrease? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I think you get smarter though as you get older. I mean, always work smarter, not harder when you can. Uh, we also have, we're at the disposal of so many big pieces of equipment that make our lives a lot easier. And I think that now I work smarter, I work more efficiently, whereas when I was 20 years old, I just wanted to see what my body could handle. It's like, let's just push it to the limit, you know? Uh, and now I'm like, well, let's maybe not put people through that same gamut that you put yourself through, because why would, that's dumb. Why would you do that? Uh, and so now, even when I'm thinking about my team in the cellar during harvest, I never once think about, let's see how hard we can push them. It's like, no, 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 let's organize the day and organize our list to make things efficient and not push them to their limit and to their breaking point. That's not what Harvest is about. I mean, working at a big facility taught me a lot. It also taught me a lot about what I don't want to do and what's not sustainable for yourself. This is a really demanding job and it takes a lot out of you and day in, day out, you're, you're working your body really, really, really hard. Um, and so it really, accentuated my, uh, my drive to not push people to their breaking point and let's just keep things efficient and let's always check in and let's maybe, you know, use a forklift instead of picking up a barrel with your bare hands, you know? That's just not, let's not do that. <laughs> I also mentioned earlier kind of the, the sort of the harvest high that we hear a lot about, like the, you know, and, and then tell me about your experience working in a winery the first time it wasn't harvest. How did you kind of ex get used to the rest of the year and sort of the, the yearly cycle of the winery? Yeah, so a center of effort, there really wasn't much downtime. It was actually kind of like harvest was every day <laughs> because even when harvest was over, uh, you're now dealing with so much volume of wine that you've made for custom crush. And so in a typical day in February, there are tankers moving in and out and in and out and you're racking tanks and you're uh, filtering and cross-flowing and um, bottling. It's just, it's, it never ends at a facility of that size. There is no downtime. Uh, so that, I never really got the harvest blues there. <laughs> uh, but moving to Palo Alto, I started in the slow season. I started in uh, February. And at a 5,000 case winery, it's very slow in February. Uh, there's not a whole lot to do, um, but you can taste. And 
that's where I was like, okay, it's time to taste. I never really had that opportunity uh, working at Center of Effort, so that's where I was given, you know, time to hone in on my skills of tasting, and that really developed a lot of how I perceive wines today. Also, it was a really great opportunity to get outside and look at vineyards, look at the fruit that we're, we're not only farming, but you know, bringing in and people are farming for us. Uh, there can be such a disconnect sometimes between winery and vineyard, and that's kind of unacceptable in my eyes. They need to be uh, one and the same. I think that you know, winemakers should be out in the vineyard helping prune and helping pull brush and sampling and being out there when the crew is shoot positioning. It's like it's something that needs to be done more. And I saw that a lot working at Paul Auto. There was a lot of time spent in the vineyard. Um, and so for me, that was great. That got me through that slow season, no problem. Because I, I was learning so much about viticulture and you know visiting some of the most prestigious vineyards on the central coast and learning a lot from their vineyard managers. I mean, there's a wealth of knowledge down there. So you mentioned that Bergstrom was something you were familiar with before coming to, or to Oregon. What, what were your sort of impressions of Oregon before coming here? What I had heard that uh, they made really great Pinot and really great Chardonnay. Uh, I heard that it rained a lot which I thought I was used to. <laughs> I don't think I'll ever be used to the cold, uh, but the rain, the rain is okay. Um, but yeah, the most important thing I had heard was about the, the sense of involvement in the community and, and how people are, their doors are always open. Um, and I know that the industry can sometimes come off as egocentric and star-studded and superficial and that really is dependent on where you are. Um, being on the Central Coast, it's incredibly humble, and I wanted to continue that path. And Central Otago, really humble. Um, you don't have showpiece wineries. It's like we're just wine growers. We're just making wine at the end of the day. And so I wanted to continue that path, and Oregon seemed like, a, like the next step just because of their reputation of, at the end of the day, it's just a lot of farmers making wine. And, they're really down-to-earth people, and we'd had Bergstrom Wines actually when I worked at Paul Otto, and um, they were so beautiful and ethereal and delicate, and that those weren't wines that I was super used to making. Uh, there's definitely, I was making wines that were higher impact, a lot riper, which is great too, and I'm like, I am really in love with this style of winemaking, and I think that, you know, because it's cooler climate up here, we can achieve that. So I'd like to explore it more. You mentioned earlier, obviously, developing your palate, obviously a huge skill as a winemaker. So tell me about how that's continued since you sort of started digging in, in at, at Palo Alto. Um, how do you continue to develop your palate? And, and how do you feel that it has, since you've been in Oregon, how, how do you feel it's grown? Uh, it's definitely changed a lot. I think that. You know, I always have my go-tos. Um, I always have my Rieslings, never forget them. Uh, but I think it's hard not to develop a house palette too, uh, especially if you're, you know, especially in 2020, because we were stuck uh, living at home for so long. 
Um, but I think that, you know, I've got tasting groups and I, most of my friends are in the industry and it really helps to have that collaborative experience with people around you, not only the people that you work with. I mean, of course, it's important to taste barrels every day and taste them with your team and taste them with everybody in the company and be putting blends together. That's incredibly important. But that's just one small little piece of the entire industry that you're looking at. Uh, there are people making Pinot in all different shapes and sizes and forms. So getting out there and tasting with friends, visiting tasting rooms, uh, tasting groups, spending all of my money on wine, <laughs> probably not wise. <laughs> my retirement fund is like, <laughs> uh, but that's what's important to me. Spend all of my money on wine and food. Uh, and that's what I do. I mean, I think I go home and, you know, we just drink wine and we talk about it. I think that's the most important thing is, you know, you don't always have to analyze the wine, but think about it when you're drinking it. Think about what you like about it, what you don't like about it. Always pick something about a wine that you do like. Um, and then if you do like it, like go and buy some more of their wines or explore that region that it came from. Uh, it's really easy to get in the pigeonhole of drinking the same wines all the time. And it's kind of overwhelming sometimes to think about how much wine is out there, <laughs> if you really think about it. Uh, and so I always try, I have my go-tos, but I always try to branch out and uh, go into Portland and wine shop, try to do that once a month. Um, and then just hanging out with friends. There are winemakers at other wineries and in other places and seeing what they're doing and seeing what they're making. Uh, the cool thing about the wine industry is that it's ever evolving and you have your classic producers that style is awesome and it's honed in and it's not going to change much. And then you have some people who every year it's something different. And, you know, vintage variation, of course, aside, but it's really great because you have such a vast variety of wines that you can get to know and wines that you can try. So you kind of left us off in 2020, obviously a huge challenge year. Um, tell me about dealing with that harvest, that 2020 harvest specifically. Um, how did you, how did the team kind of get through? And what, if anything, did that sort of change about the trajectory of, of your work? Yeah, so um, 2020 is already challenging logistically because of the pandemic. Uh, we were really limited in the team that we could bring on. So in a harvest where we would typically have four or five interns, we had two. <laughs> and it is what it is. Uh, we are incredibly lucky that we were well into harvest before the smoke really settled in. Uh, but yeah, I remember that day <laughs> pretty vividly, as a lot of people do. And uh, we lost power. That was the first thing, and it was incredibly windy. And I remember sitting on an old planter right over there, and there's this wall of black just coming towards us, looked like Mordor. And uh, on the other side, crystal clear blue skies. You would never know anything was happening. And yeah, Josh and Caroline were living at the Vineyard House just right next door, and we all kind of went home that day. It's like, all right, we'll see you tomorrow. We're picking, right? <laughs> okay. And uh, 
we show up the next morning. Well, I woke up at, you know, five o'clock and there's the Bald Peak fire happening. And like, well, Josh is at the winery, so we're going to the winery. We're still picking, it's happening. And so we're driving into the winery and we had no power. So we're doing pump overs with five gallon buckets, trying to hook up the last generator that they had available to rent, trying to get our press going because we have to press Chardonnay. And uh, yeah, got four flushes on every toilet. So <laughs> it was kind of, it was crazy. You know, we couldn't do much. So um, we picked the, our high density Chardonnay on site. It took us way too long, but there was really nothing else that we could do and uh, Bald Peak is burning and we're just looking at it and there are flames this way, there's smoke that way. And uh, it was 11 o'clock and we were still wearing headlamps because we couldn't see the fruit that was eight inches away from our face. That was a really hard day. It was really, really surreal. And I've never seen smoke like that before. That was uh, the wall that came in was so dense. And then, of course, as it always does, the wind just stopped and the smoke settled and it just stayed there for a really long time. And we picked vigorously. We were picking as much as we could every day. Um, we pushed things through really, really fast ferments, minimal skin contact, like let's just get it through. Let's try to retain our style as much as we can. Let's not try to extract. Uh, and at that point, we didn't have any fruit contracts. So um, it was all estate. Our farming costs had been put in. It's not like we were gonna leave the fruit out there. That would, like you're not gonna learn anything from doing that. So we picked everything. And I'm really proud to say and proud of our team that we made wines in 2020. Um, you know, it's, that's where tasting and being confident in your palate also really came into play because you're tasting wines. We were tasting wines every day. We had multiple passes through the cellar, um, always talking about the wines that we were tasting because the wines almost had an ebb and flow with, is this smoky? I don't know. Let's, let's taste it again in a couple weeks. Oh, it's fine. It's totally fine. Um, but I think the four of us constantly tasting together and separately and marking things down uh, really, really helped. And the wines that we put together are incredible. And we got to make really, really beautiful wines that year. I'm thankful for that. Um, we learned a lot about how to <laughs> protect ourselves if this ever happens again, which I'd hate to say that it will, but I'm sorry, it probably will. And uh, I think a lot of people learned about what to do if this ever happened again. Um, and coming from California, I mean, I haven't dealt with smoke taint in the same way that people in Northern California have, but it's definitely been a factor that we've had to deal with in the cellar. Um, and it's something that I was able to, to pick out and feel pr pretty confident in tasting. And so, yeah, moving forward, I think we'd probably do it the exact same way um, for a lot of things. So I think that it really worked out, but also there are so many tools in place now that we didn't necessarily have before. Um, putting in really good plans, micro-ferments, uh, getting all of those squared away so that if it ever does come in the middle of harvest, we're prepared and ready to go. 
And tell me how the last couple of harvests have gone. Obviously, their own unique challenges. Um, mm -hmm. How have they gone and how has your role here changed and expanded? Yeah, so 2020 was challenging. Uh, 2021, incredible. Uh, yeah, we, we went into 2021. Oh man, that was a really great harvest. 100% uh, whole cluster. Yeah, so uh, we had already been making that shift to implementing more and more whole cluster into our Pinot ferments, and 2021 was the year to do it. So we went 100%, and it was awesome. <laughs> uh, it was the redemption harvest that I think a lot of people needed. Uh, the weather was incredible, the fruit was clean, fruit morphology, awesome. Uh, all the stars had aligned for, for a really great harvest for us. And um, we were actually able to sort fruit in the vineyard. Uh, we started a new method of sorting in the vineyard, dumping it straight into fermenters on site. We brought out the sorting table once. Uh, <laughs> it was, oh, I love it, that was a great harvest. Um, but also the 100% whole cluster, uh, that was something that I was still getting comfortable with. It's a totally different ball game than destemming. And Pinot is already a really challenging varietal to make. And uh, whole cluster, I mean, you have temperature to worry about. You've got stem extraction to worry about. Also, you have very little free run in your fermenter. So proportionally speaking, when you're running chemistries or you make additions, it's not gonna look right for a really long time. And also just tasting that free run and tank before you press, you put a lot of trust into what's gonna happen at the press pan. Uh, and that was something that I didn't really know a whole lot about yet because 2019, yeah, I was just an intern. <laughs> I was, you know, just scrambling to figure everything out as quickly as I could here. In um, 2020, we weren't able to do as much whole cluster as we wanted. And uh, 2021, it was like, all right, this is, let's bring out the big guns. And I just had to trust Josh on that. And I was like, all right, I'm gonna trust you again. Let's, <laughs> let's do it again. <laughs> and, it turned out great. Our 2021s, are, I think, are some of the best wines that we've ever made. Um, they're so delicate, yet so balanced. I mean, we strive for natural acidity, and uh, but also to have enough weight and tannin to carry things through and bottle for a really long time. I mean, it's really great to make delicate wines, but will they last? And I think 2021 for us, it was this beautiful balance of ethereal and strength, you know, together. And that is largely due to, you know, bringing whole cluster into the game. Uh, and I learned a lot about where to find the extraction. Uh, you're not gonna, you don't wanna gain all of your extraction, you know, through ferment on skins when you're doing whole cluster. Um, you're looking for body and character and, you know, if you're trying to achieve tons of structure through breaking up stems, that's, that's not really what you want either. Um, and then if you're trying to gain structure through pressing really hard, that's not really gonna work either in my mind. So uh, it's a really delicate dance that you're playing with 
finding just the right balance of fruit forwardness and vineyard expression and also structure from those stems. And temperature is also a huge thing for us here and it's not something that's easily controlled with a whole cluster ferment. Um, and so we're constantly tasting tanks, monitoring them throughout the day, uh, all taste a fermenter four or five times every day during harvest and that's just what it takes because whole cluster can be really unpredictable and you gotta watch it all the way through and it's not just a two punch down a day kind of deal, it's every tank has its own story, every tank has its own path through ferment and we don't follow a recipe, it's just like what does this tank need today? And it may be totally different than the fermenter next door that has the same fruit in it, some from the same block, uh, but we really take a lot of care in understanding each fermenter and how different it's gonna be. And so, <clears throat> tell me about your role and the expansion of your role here. Yeah, so I was cellar master here until February of 2022. And then we had a bit of a shift in our team and I was promoted to assistant winemaker, um, which you know is a big step and a lot of responsibility. And especially working for a brand that has been, you know, creating such a great reputation for the over two decades. I mean, Josh and Caroline have put so much effort into the family story and crafting really beautiful wines that you know, being put in a role of leadership, <laughs> that's a lot of pressure. Uh, and I put a lot of that pressure on myself. Um, but yeah, being put into that role, it didn't last very long actually. <laughs> so I never really got to be an assistant winemaker um, because in June of 2022, uh, Josh moved into a director of winemaking role and I was promoted to winemaker, which is like, let's just add that that pressure on a little bit more. <laughs> uh, and so my role really, really escalated in just a matter of, you know, six months. Um, went from, you know, helping manage the cellar and ordering bottling supplies to, all right, you got this. <laughs> and it's a lot. I mean, day to day, there are a lot of aspects of, of being a winemaker that I never really thought about. Um, when I was just cleaning lines and clamps and putting a filter together. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of it that happens on a computer. Um, there's a lot of it that happens in meetings, happens with sales that, that you never really see or understand until you're in that position. And uh, even being a manager, you know, he's like, hire your team. And so I hired my team. and. I've got Kyle and Lauren, you know, rock star cellar master and enologist, and um, we we work really, really well together. But it's also like finding that balance of being a really good manager because that's really important, and it's something I'm still learning so much about. I think I'll be learning about it for the rest of my life. Uh, but yeah, my role significantly changed, and the fact that Josh had the confidence in me to to take on this role. I mean, he's been doing it for over 20 years and then to, you know, hand the torch over, that's, that's a lot. And he's been there with me every step of the way, but, you know, I have been through some really challenging vintages here and um, he thought that I was ready. And I, I mean, I felt confident and 
we went into 2022 and uh, that was a really hard harvest as a first vintage winemaker at Bergstrom. That was really, really challenging. We were dealing with a wet summer and uh, we lost half of our Chardonnay to frost and fruit chemistries were weird. Ripening windows were really uneven. Uh, and yeah, I mean, there was a lot of disease pressure out there that we had to be really mindful of. And so, you know, to be new in a role where you're taking on, you know, the managerial side, taking on a cellar team for harvest, handling bottlings, and yeah, new team in the cellar, uh, I, I had to grow a lot and I had to grow really, really quickly into that role and um, had to put on my professional pants, <laughs> and uh, so to speak. And uh, I'm really proud of the wines that we made in 2022 as well. You know, it was really challenging and we had to be really diligent about sorting fruit and keeping a really close eye on ferments. And, you know, we didn't get to do as much whole cluster as we wanted to this vintage, unfortunately, but that was, you know, vintage variation and that's what it gave us. Um, but I feel like you know, my role is changing a lot and it's continuing to change. You know, as I get more comfortable in making a lot of these decisions, uh, I'll get more confident, I think. And um, every vintage is different too. <laughs> but I'm learning a lot about our vineyards. I mean, uh, my goal too as a winemaker is to, you know, if you do things right in the cellar, especially with how we do things here, uh, you're only really working in the winery six months out of the year. You've got a lot of downtime where you can be doing other things. And so our winemaking team, we get out in the vineyard as much as we can. I mean, we're out there pulling brush and tying things down and pruning with our farming team whenever we can. And when it comes time to, to spray, we're backpack spraying high density with them, which is amazing. I love it. It's a great workout. Uh, <laughs> but just kind of being in the vineyard throughout the growing season is really, really important and seeing how things progress and knowing where every block is because you'd be surprised how many people don't know where their blocks are <laughs> or what clones are planted in what block or you know, how they need to be trained. And the better that we understand that, I think the more well-rounded and the better winemakers we become. And so that's been a really big part of me moving into a role of leadership is let's keep this going. Let's spend as much time out there as we possibly can uh, because we don't need to be hanging out in the winery. There's nothing to do in here in March. Like, let's go out there. And uh, so, yeah. And, really understanding how to be a good manager and uh, inspiring my team to, to be the best winemakers they can be because it's not just me, it's I'm one piece of the puzzle and I can't do it without the people that I work with every day. Um, you know, if Josh isn't here or Kyle or Lauren aren't here, it's, it's a piece of the puzzle that's missing and we rely on, you know, all of us to get the job done. Um, and, and we're a really tight team in that regard. And uh, yeah, we'll start blending in May. I'm really excited. And uh, yeah, we'll get to taste some 22s. It's gonna be exciting. You mentioned sort of the pressure that comes taking over a role like that that's only ever had one winemaker before it. Uh, tell me about uh, 
taking over something like that that has an established palette, has an established brand, it's an established uh, style, how do you bring yourself into it and what else outside of sort of general winemaking do you feel um, is taking up sort of your energy now as well? Like you mentioned leadership. Are you doing more outside the cellar than you were expecting? Um, in a way, yes. It's, for me, it's more learning to let go, <laughs> I think, is really hard. I mean, I've been doing the wine work here since 2019. And, you know, I've been sanitizing the pumps and putting the filter together and loading up the, the trucks going out to Northwest Distribution. And uh, for me, that is really hard is letting go of those things. I never want to be a winemaker that makes wine from a desk. I promised myself when I went to college I wouldn't work in a cubicle. Uh, so I, I'm trying to spend as much time as I can in the cellar without making my cellar staff feel redundant. Uh, but also teaching them what I know. I mean, I'm young and I don't know a lot. I don't know everything. There's a lot that I can teach them, but there's also a lot that I can learn. Um, so, yes and no. I mean, I spend a lot more time on the computer, <laughs> a lot more time on Excel. <laughs> uh, but also, when Josh put me into this position, you know, the goal was to be able to take more of a macro view of the business as a whole and to, you know, be able to rely on other people to do the daily activities and what's needed in the winery and be able to go out and take walks in the vineyard and get inspired and bring that inspiration and that culture back into the winery and share it with the team. Uh, because that passion, when you know you go out and you're inspired by something, is what then translates into the wine that you're making. And if you're constantly overwhelmed or frustrated or doing everything in the winery because you're so stressed. It's like, where are you getting your passion? In a way, you're kind of losing it because you're not able to go out and spend time in the vineyard or you just feel so bogged down by your responsibilities in the winery. Uh, and that's something that I need to learn <laughs> is, you know, it's okay, Maddie. They got it. They're, they're fine. Like, go out. Go hang out with the chickens down by the barn. I don't know. Like, Go take a drive through all the estate vineyards. Just go and, and do that for a little while. Um, so finding that balance definitely between, you know, mentoring and leading a team and, you know, not doing the work yourself 100%. It's really hard for me to let go, and I'm sure it drives Kyle and Lauren crazy. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, it's something that I've been so used to. And it's been a really quick transition, so I think I'm catching up a bit in that sense. And Josh has also been incredibly patient with me, and uh, he put a lot of trust in me, he and Caroline both, and they spent so long building this brand and this story. And I, I mean, I don't even know if I would feel comfortable just, you know, handing that over, and, and it's, I'm incredibly grateful for the opportunity and the experience to put my imprint on these wines and the fact that they trust me to do that and have faith in me and my abilities in the winery is really, really special. So we talked earlier about your 
sort of pre-impressions and early impressions of, of Oregon and its industry. And obviously the past couple of years have not been the ideal years to see the industry in all of its glory. But I'm curious, uh, have your impressions of the industry changed at all? And, and to you, what does the Oregon wine industry look like in 2023? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, uh, I feel like there's a bit of a shift happening. I feel like there's a, a changing of the guard uh, in a way, a lot of my friends who have been in the position that I've been in the last few years are, are moving into positions of leadership and, you know, titans of the industry up here are starting to take, you know, a backseat role and like, okay, it's time to, to let these guys do their thing. And uh, I really hope that the collaborative nature of the Oregon wine industry can continue now. I mean, there are so many new people coming in. I'm one of them. <laughs> uh, but there is a huge influx of people coming in from all over. And I think that what draws people to this place is the fact that it's so collaborative and it comes from humble beginnings. And uh, I just hope that that doesn't change. Um, and of course, things are always expected to change. That's life, that's evolution. Uh, I think that, you know, that being said, there's a great deal of investment happening up here. And I know that some people aren't always super happy about it, but I think it's really great. I think it's putting, you know, Oregon under a microscope and giving us a lot of exposure all around the world. And we have to be able to sell wine to make more wine. <laughs> so, uh, you know, why not take it? I think it's great. It's giving us the spotlight that we deserve and that people here have worked so hard for. Um, so the investment is really promising that good things are on the horizon for Oregon. That leads me nicely to my next question is, what is on the horizon for Oregon? What's coming uh, in the future that you're excited for and what are you looking ahead to with maybe some trepidation? Yeah, I mean, one thing, so I won't get too into the nitty gritty of it, but it definitely seems like labor is gonna be uh, pretty challenging in the future. Uh, so I'm really excited to see you know, mechanization and farming come into play. Uh, I know that there are so many implements out there that are gaining a lot of traction and I'd be curious to learn more about them and see them in full swing. So I think, yeah, farming mechanization is something that's really cool. Um, I think that, uh, as I'm sure you saw this morning with all the snow, uh, weather is going to be kind of funky and we, we rely heavily on weather here. It's a challenging region to farm, farm Pinot Noir and Chardonnay in. And, uh, I think that we're really going to have to learn to adapt and, it's hard to predict what the, the weather is going to be like, but we are at the mercy of Mother Nature when you're farming something. And in one day, it can all be gone, as a, a lot of people have seen in a lot of vintages. And I think that the, the faster that we adapt to, you know, better pruning, better farming methods, the better. Um, and then, you know, I'm really excited. It seems like there's a lot of fun plantings going into Oregon, a lot of Pinot too. Uh, but it seems like there are a lot of cool, you know, small producers out there experimenting with things that maybe are a little hardier and more weather resistant or powdery mildew resistant. Uh, so I'm really excited to see those guys make some really cool wines. 
Talk about Bergstrom's future a little bit. Uh, obviously, just getting your feet wet still in, in this role. Uh, as you look ahead for Bergstrom over the next few years, uh, are there projects you want to undertake, new challenges you're looking forward to, anything kind of on the horizon there? Yeah, I'm gonna talk Josh into planting some Riesling somewhere. <laughs> Every day I'm like, so, Riesling Vineyard, hear me out. <laughs> uh, I'd love to make Riesling someday, um, maybe do a vintage in Germany, I don't know, but it's not over for me yet. One day, I will, I will make Riesling again. Um, yeah, I mean, I'd like to, to see our Chardonnay program grow. I mean, it's something that we didn't really touch upon today, but I think it's the shining star of, of Bergstrom Wines. Our Chardonnays are like no other, and uh, working here really, like most people say that work here, made me fall in love with Chardonnay. <laughs> uh, it's flawless, it's incredible, it's, you know, there's minerality, there's acidity, it's a wine that is addicting. It's addictive and you can't let it go. Uh, so I'd love to expand our Chardonnay program. Uh, maybe, you know, expand plantings with Chardonnay a little bit more, I don't know. Uh, yeah, and also just getting into my role, I mean, I'd love to really hone in on um, vineyard expression. I don't, I mean, I've only worked with the vineyards that we farm for a few vintages, and, and I'd love to get to know them uh, a lot better. And I've had, of the, <laughs> let's see, 1922, of the four vintages I've worked here, two have been really, really challenging. Um, so I'd love to have some more, more vintages under my belt where I can feel more confident about vineyard expression, uh, you know, just everyday management in the cellar. I'm learning something new every year, and uh, I don't think I'll ever stop learning. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, maybe we'll, uh, we'll grow our program even more over the next years. Who really, who really knows? And for you personally, tell me about what's in the future, uh, in wine or outside of wine. What are you looking ahead to and what are some of the kind of things on the horizon for you? Yeah, I mean, uh, I've got my chickens. <laughs> Anyone who knows me knows that that is what I am by far most passionate about at the moment. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, this time of year, I'm usually out at the coast crabbing, getting ready for morel season. Um, my fiance and I love to, to spend time up in the woods or going out to the coast and uh, it's kind of a good reset period for us both. Um, we have a lot of fun in Oregon, but also getting out and going on vacation, traveling, going back to Italy as much as we can. Um, at Bergstrom, I mean, Every day is a new adventure. <laughs> this year I'm gonna learn how to drive a tractor uh, because that is something that I need to know how to do. So that is on my list. Um, I've already roped in the vineyard manager. It's on his to-do list. So those are, that's the big ticket item for me in the next few months. Um, and then yeah, just, just really getting to know the wines a lot better. I mean, learning from Josh, he's got so much experience and knowledge to, to pass down to, 
to our team and to myself. And so gaining as much of that as I can, tasting with, with him on a regular basis is really important because there's only so much that school and work can teach you. A lot of it comes from mentorship and, and talking to people who have so much experience in making wine and learning their story. And I think just you know, having time to have that one-on-one -on -one time is really, really important to me. So, so chickens, crabs, mushrooms. Food, basically. Tra and, tra and a tractor. <laughs> that, is a, that is like the winemaker's answer I've ever heard. So. Yeah, I, uh, when I'm not making wine, I'm eating, <laughs> cooking. Uh, yeah, I mean, it goes back to how my parents raised me. They have taught me everything I know, pretty much, uh, apart from winemaking, obviously. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, this time of year, I'm usually fixing stuff around my house. I like to fix things, so the to-do list of handyman work has grown quite large since harvest, um, house projects, but I mean, yeah, a lot of it goes back to, to my childhood. I think that it continues on and on, and uh, yeah, food number one, wine number one. I'm just gonna be eating and drinking till the day I die, you know? <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, that's all the questions that I have for you. Anything that I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover that you'd like to cover here today? I don't think so. I mean, you know, most important thing is just love what you do and be humble doing it. So, yeah. Good advice. And thank you so much for your time, for sharing your stories you. with us. Go and let you off the hook. Okay, thanks. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.